afraid of the shadows in your bedroom? Some are, especially if you're a kid here this morning. Are you afraid of what lurks in the next news cycle? More violence, more financial disaster, more disease. Many are, especially if you are an adult. Fear flows from many sources, but it all empties into the same pool. When you chase your fear all the way down, you'll find that it takes you to death. Not everything we fear actually threatens death, just as the shadows in your room don't represent any real danger. We fear all kinds of things that won't actually kill us. We just fear that they somehow will. Death is the ultimate punishment because it takes everything away from us. And every punishment echoes its ultimate form because punishment, in one way or another, takes something away. When we see Jesus hanging on the cross, when we see Him lying dead in the tomb, we see that everything has been taken away from Him. His body is packed away with the expectation that it will decay and then they'll gather up His bones and put it in a nice ornate box and there they will stay forever. And so the disciples, having seen all this played out, are scared out of their minds that they'll be next. But what's funny is that the high priests and the Pharisees don't imagine that this is what is going through the minds of the disciples. Somehow they think that they're going to be scheming. Scheming to get back the body of Jesus Christ. And so before we look at this text, I just want you to put yourself in the mindset of the disciples. What they were feeling. I'm going to have Josh come and he's going to read the Scripture for us this morning. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. 
there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance were, was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are, to say to, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we, were, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So there you've heard it. The scheme of the high priests and the Pharisees was that they would keep Jesus in the tomb by putting a guard. Not because they thought that Jesus was actually going to rise from the dead, but because they had heard him speak of him being raised on the third day. And, and so they thought the disciples are going to come and steal his body to make it all seem like this really happened. And they were so concerned about this that they went on the Sabbath day to Pilate to convince him to give them this guard. Now, Matthew doesn't call the Sabbath day here. It seems like he's trying to put his focus on the resurrection of Christ. He calls it prep the day after preparation day, which is Saturday, which is the Sabbath. Now, it seems like perhaps these high priests and Pharisees who were so concerned with keeping within the lines of their religious regulations may have broken something here in going to Pilate, but perhaps they were able to stay within the bounds of the rules, but still, it's an extraordinary step to take when they should just be not working, not doing anything. They're still worried about Jesus because they believe that Jesus is a world-class deceiver. And we've heard this accusation laid against Jesus earlier in his ministry as he's going among the crowds. In John seven twelve. It says, among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Now, what's interesting here is you see these religious leaders very concerned that the disciples are going to steal the body because Jesus has spoke about his resurrection. 
And yet, everything that we've read previously up to this point indicates that the disciples are not actually anticipating that. Because if they were, they would be like, ah, don't sweat the cross. Jesus is going to come right back. Um, and so it makes us wonder, though, it's like, why did they seem to have no hope? Well, I, I think what we can maybe suggest here is that they weren't taking Jesus literally when he was speaking about his suffering, his death, his resurrection. They'd heard him speak in parables before. And so this is why when all this stuff actually started to play out, it was a rather rude awakening to them. Now we do see in the Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark, very explicitly um, Jesus referred to the fact that on the third day he's going to be raised to life. And so there was reason to have this expectation, and yet the disciples, they're just so overcome with fear. But swiveling back to these religious leaders, they've gone to Pilate, and they say, hey, just please can we have a guard and make sure that no more trouble is caused, and Pilate's like, I want these guys to get out of my hair, I'm so done with this. So he says, sure, take a guard. And these were, there's some debate as to whether the, um, these were in fact Roman soldiers or whether they were temple guards. Seems though that they were Roman auxiliary soldiers. And so they said, put the guard at the tomb, sealed, put a seal on the stone. Now, I know for some of you kids when you hear that, put a seal on the stone, you might think of this guy. And, and this guy isn't keeping anyone away. I mean, I'd want to go to the tomb uh, to, see, to see that seal. Um, but that's not the kind of seal that Pilate is saying to put on the stone here. What he's referring to is a Roman imperial seal that would have indicated that if you try to open up this tomb, you're going to feel the full weight of Roman justice. And now the way that they, you know, this is a letter, but the way they would have done it is they would have put some ropes over the tomb and then put this wax seal on either end, not because the wax is going to keep someone from opening it, but because if you move it, you know someone's broken it. And so you're going to be held accountable for that. And so the, so the stakes are very high now for the disciples if they're going to pull off a robbery. They're going to have to face Roman soldiers, and then even if they manage to get rid of the Roman soldiers, they're going to have to take that final last step and break that seal and basically make themselves officially fugitives in the Roman Empire. Now the full significance of this will reappear when we look more closely at verses 11 to 15 of the next chapter. But now we turn from chapter 27 to 28, from Saturday to Sunday. It's the first day of the week. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are going to the tomb. Now, the other Gospels indicate that there might have been some other women here as well. But the significance of Matthew, I think, mentioning Mary Magdalene and this other Mary here is that they were present when Jesus was buried. So they have certifiable knowledge that Jesus is supposed to be dead. He's supposed to be in that tomb. They saw him in there. So they go to the tomb. 
They've stayed home on the Sabbath. They haven't gone to the tomb on the Sabbath. But they go on Sunday. And they walk upon quite a scene. Now, the way that Matthew records things here is kind of a condensed version of how things actually played out. It's kind of tough for us as 21st century American readers because we expect everything to be kind of recorded chronologically and kind of like a video camera presentation of how things happened. But what Matthew has done here is kind of collapse the details that have preceded the women arriving at the scene of Jesus' tomb. And, and we get this sense when we read the other gospel narratives on how things played out. So we shouldn't think that the women walked up to the tomb and that then the angel appeared in the earthquake and the, and the, and the guards were uh, you know, laying on the ground like a... Uh, and the tomb was open. Um, instead, we can expect that all these things happened before they even arrived. And that they showed up and probably the guards themselves were even gone. They, were probably, they probably didn't have to walk over them. They probably were like, oh man, we failed at our job and they hightailed it out of there. And again, if you look at the other gospel narratives, you can see how that, this is how things probably played out. Now, I, I, I've been mentioning, you know, looking at the other gospel narratives, and it is interesting because they mention different numbers of, of women, different numbers of angels. Um, the descriptions are different as to who Jesus meets. Um, and there's an inclusion and absence of various details. And when you're studying the Bible closely and you see that, your initial thought may be like, oh no, like these things are contradicting each other, and so um, something's not right. But we have to be very, very careful in the way that we think through things. We have to think things through things very rationally here. And note that while there are differences, there is nothing contradictory here in the details between the Gospels. It's like an eyewitness testimony. Different eyewitnesses are going to see different details. And so what we have to understand the Gospel narratives of doing is, is they're not ever claiming that here's the whole pie. What they're doing is, here's the slice of the pie that I'm giving you. And Luke's going to give you another slice of the pie. And Mark's going to give you another slice of the pie. And John's going to give you another slice of of the pie. And I love it because when you go to the Gospel of John, the Apostle John is utterly explicit that, that we couldn't possibly describe everything that happened in Jesus' ministry. In John 21, 25, he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now, that can be a little bit frustrating for us because like, we want all the books. We want to know all the information. But we don't need all the information. Everything that we need has been given to us in these gospel accounts. So these women arrive at the tomb and the angel says to them, there's this angel here, and he says to them, as to where Jesus is, because he's missing, he's not in his tomb. He's not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting here when we're, we're seeing how the tomb has been opened, the tomb has been opened really for the benefit of the women to see that Jesus is no longer there. The thing that we have to understand about Jesus' resurrection body is that while it is physical, he's not just spiritual, it is a physical being, it is a transformed physical being. The resurrection of Jesus is not like Lazarus being raised from the dead, or if, one of, or if you or I died and then we came back to life. He comes back with a new transformed body, which almost, it's kind of tough to put in familiar terms, but we're all familiar with kind of like sci-fi stuff, and you think about other dimensions. It's almost a mode of being and existence that straddles two dimensions. Because he's clearly physical, as we'll see, and yet he comes and goes as he pleases. And so we understand Jesus has a transformed body, and then if we look at ourselves and what we anticipate in our resurrection, we too will have transformed body. So the tomb has been opened not because Jesus is like, hey, let me out. He's gone out. The tomb's been opened because the women need to see that he's no longer there, that he is in fact risen. Now when we look after all these events and we go to the early church's testimony of everything that happened, we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, it's sort of like mini-creed, mini-narrative of Jesus' resurrection appearances. And scholars believe that this would have been something that was formed less than 10 years after Jesus actually rose from the dead. So a very early testimony. And the Apostle Paul passes this on. He says, For what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So this is the list here, like the big list, the kind of the, if, of the appearances that the apostles go out to the world with. A very simple summary. But we understand here that Peter was not in fact the first one who saw Jesus. And while he appears first in this list, it's not, never claimed in this, this, this creed that Paul is saying that he was the first. He's just listed as first. Because he's a very prominent figure in the church. When we look at the Gospel of Matthew and of John, we see very explicitly that the women are the first to see Jesus alive. And we see in all the Gospels the women are the first reporters of the empty tombs. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that in the first century A.D., 
women were not considered reliable reporters. And you, and you get this, you understand this, um, when you hear the opinion of a historian from that time, a Jewish historian named Josephus. He says, but let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lies. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Pretty offensive stuff, right? <laughs> From Josephus. You want, to slap, you want to slap Josephus right now. Um, but that's just how it was back then. And, and that's interesting to know, because if you're the disciples and you're writing the gospel, you know, Matthew's here writing his gospel, if he was making all this up, why in the world would he have the women to be the first on the scene? Why in the world would he have them the first to meet Jesus? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense if you're just concocting the story. And so we do see here that the women are the first to see Jesus. In verse 7, they've, they've heard the angelic word, which, I mean, that's just... A, an incredible encounter in and of itself, and the fact that you have two of them seeing, seeing this. So you're already relying on testimony there, but they're excited, they're, but they're also afraid. In verse 7 it says, they're afraid yet filled, filled with joy. And you can imagine kind of that, that tension playing out because they don't really understand what's going on. They're freaked out. They just met an angel. Um, and as they're going, though, it just gets all the more incredible because Jesus meets them. He says greetings, which in our society sounds very formal, but in the original language, the word that he would have used would have been basically just like, hello. Like, you just imagine just, Jesus popping, hey, hey, how you doing? That, that was kind of how, and they're, they're just, of course, they didn't just react casually. They fall down. And they clasp his feet and worship him. And even that just little detail that they clasp his feet is important here because it's indicating that they're not saying that they saw a spirit or a vision. They clasped his feet. He's really there. And they worship him. We hear that this kind of played out yet again by the Apostle John in Revelation 1.17 when he does have his vision and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And, and here, Jesus tells the women, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus is telling him, drop all the fear from the equation here. Just experience the joy in this reality that I am raised from the dead. The simple joy that Jesus is alive. And they have every reason to be joyful, even if they can't, like if you're going to ask them, why are you happy? You know, like, what do you mean, why am I happy? Jesus is alive. But later on, you can comprehend all the reasons why they have to be overjoyed. Because Jesus is alive, it means that he is the Messiah. Peter, in his first sermon in Jerusalem, points this out 
looking to the Psalms, in Acts 2, verses 25 through 32. It says, David said about him in Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the de dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. God's promise that a son of David would sit on the throne forever is not fulfilled if he's dead. He must be alive. And so the fact that Jesus is alive, that he is raised from the dead, indicates that God has fulfilled his promise to introduce a true king for his people. Because Jesus is alive, they can know, we can know that we can be forgiven. Romans 4.25, Paul says, He was delivered over to, over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, a lot of us can kind of miss out on this. We th we, you know, because this, the, the cross is the iconic symbol of the Christian faith, we can think like, okay, the resurrection's nice, but you really need to have that death. And you did need to have that death. But if Christ is not raised, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. We are not justified if Christ is not raised from the dead. Paul says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's basically worthless. You are still in your sins. You're still guilty. You're still condemned. And the reason why that is is because, well, it's kind of twofold. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that He is accepted by the Father. That He is not, in fact, guilty before the Father. Because that's what everyone thought. Oh, this guy's a blasphemer. He's rejected by God. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's the end with him. By his resurrection, we see, no, that is not the case. That, in fact, God accepts Jesus Christ. And what's more, what it means is that because he has been raised from the dead, he will now ascend to the Father and be able to intercede on our behalf to act as our mediator between us and God. Now that all sounds very fancy maybe, and you're like, I, I don't know what that means, but it's pretty simple. I mean, imagine if you wanted to go see someone famous, maybe the president or an actor, your favorite, favorite athlete or something like that. You can't just walk up to that person's house. And then let's just make it worse. Let's say like you like put a dent in their car or something. You did something where they wouldn't like you. <laughs> They won't want to have anything to do with you unless maybe you can send someone to mediate on your behalf. Now let's carry this over into the relationship between us and God. God loves us, 
But we've put a distance between us and God because of our rebellion against Him. We've basically taken a sledgehammer to His creation and said, this is how we want it. And God's like, that's not how I designed it to be. And the question is, how does that get repaired? How does that relationship get repaired? We need someone to be a mediator, to be a go-between, to restore a relationship with God. And that's who Jesus is. He patches things back up because of who He is. Because of the offering of His perfect life and the power that He has to make all things new. The Epistle of Hebrews tells us this, comparing and contrasting the priests of old with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7, verses 23-27, through 27, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, because He's been resurrected, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The work is complete. It is finished when Jesus dies on the cross and it's sealed, signed, certified, delivered when he, he ascends to the Father and he presents his blood for our sakes. And his blood is representing his life. He is the new Adam. He is the new humanity. And through Him we regain access to God. Because Jesus is alive, we no longer have to fear death. Paul says in Romans 6.9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. Jesus is the boss of death. He's owned death. And so because He has overcome death, we no longer have to fear death because He has tasted death for us. And He's crushed it. And so because He lives, we can know that we too will live again. That we will be resurrected from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23, and also in 2 Corinthians 4, this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is just the first of the crop. There's a whole bunch that is to follow, namely us. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to Him. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to Himself. Now the wonderful thing about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, aside from everything else that we we're mentioning here, is that it assures us of God's promise to raise us from the dead. Because we see in the Old Testament how again and again God speaks of this day through his prophets when the dead will be raised. And the Jews were anticipating this is something that's going to happen at the end of history. What's interesting about Jesus is that his resurrection happens in the middle of history. 
And that's what makes him the first fruits. And it's a sign to us. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can believe that we too will be raised from the dead. And so, of course, all of this is an occasion for the women's joy. It's the absolute occasion for our joy. But it posed a bit of a problem for the guards who were supposed to keep Jesus in the tomb. Now, it's interesting when you look among the Gospel narratives, Matthew's the only one to mention the guards. And we ask why. Why was he the only one to mention the guards? Well, it seems that he may have been responding to the preponderance of this story that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus and that this had been spread around by these guards. If there hadn't been any guards altogether, they could have just easily denied Matthew's version of, of events here. But it suggests that, no, there was guards there. But they were saying that the body was stolen. And Matthew says in verse 15, he says, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, let's just take the story at face value. The disciples stole the body of Jesus. It's a very improbable story. Remember, the, the disciples are scared out of their minds. They've seen Jesus just been crucified. And now, for some reason, they're going to have the gall to go against some Roman guards and then also break a Roman seal to drag out Jesus' body. To what end? They know that Jesus is really dead. What do they have to gain from putting out this story that, oh, he's actually raised from the dead? The only thing that they have to gain is a cross. The other thing that's improbable about this whole story is that the disciples, rather not the disciples, the guards here, were supposed to have fallen asleep. So if they're sleeping, how do they know it was the disciples that stole the body? You don't know anything that's going on if, if you've fallen asleep. Matthew here explains the, the true origins of how this story came about. He says the chief priest paid them off. He told them what to say. Here's some money. We'll take care of things. And if you're afraid, they basically said, if you're afraid what the governor Pilate's going to do, if he finds out, don't worry, we'll take care of him too. Money would handle the problems. Now, as, a, as has already been mentioned many times, the disciples had every reason to be afraid after seeing Jesus crucified. For all they knew, they were next. So the question is, is that we must ask is, what changes them from that condition? They had no money to protect themselves with. They couldn't pay any people off. We don't hear of them going around armed at all times. When they begin proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead, all the same dangers remain. They are imprisoned and assaulted for all their trouble. And many die or come close to dying for claiming that Jesus is alive. There are dangers in the shadows here, and yet they are unafraid. 
What explains this? The only sufficient explanation is that they actually saw Jesus alive. Their testimony here in Matthew and the rest of the New Testament is that they all saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. This was no weird dream after a bad batch of fish. They were not mistaken. And it makes no sense for them to lie because they had nothing to gain but hardship. They welcomed hardship. They welcomed death because they were no longer afraid after seeing Jesus alive. Because Jesus lives, they know that death can be overcome. Because Jesus lives, they know that everything He said about Himself is true. Because Jesus lives, they know that He can offer them forgiveness and give them a place in God's kingdom. This changed everything for the disciples. So the question for you is simple. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Because if you believe He lives, if you really believe that, then everything should change for you. If Jesus is alive, you should go to Him so that you too may live. It's really that simple. If death is facing all of us, we should all go to the One who can bring us back to life. If He holds the keys to life, if He is able to forgive us and restore us, what else could possibly be more important? Because this is the reality. Everything you have worked for your whole life will ultimately crumble away to nothing. It will all pass away. Our life's work will be forgotten. One by one, loved ones will die until you are alone. And then your children will die. And so it will go on and on. The world will forget us. This is all we have if Jesus is dead in the grave. But if Jesus lives, God will not forget us. All will be remembered. You will be remembered. We will be brought to life once again to live forever. And everything that we have done in the name of Jesus Christ will take on the weight of eternal glory. Far outstripping the paltry fame that people pursue in this world in order to live on forever. It's a very poor reward. Drop your agenda to nowhere. Go to Jesus and live. Let us pray. Dear Father, because Jesus ha lives, we have somewhere to go. We can go to Him and believe. 
and receive the promise that we too will be raised from the dead. Father, we confess that we do not deserve this. That we do not deserve to be brought back to life. That on our own stead, Father, we deserve just to be destroyed and completely forgotten. But You have loved us. And we see Your love, Father, because You sent Your Son to die. To take on the weight of the curse and sin of this world. To offer Himself so that we could begin anew in Him. So that we could be forgiven and take on His righteousness and be created anew as You designed us to be. Righteous, good people. And so, Father, this morning, all of us who believe, we just thank You again that we have this hope in the face of death. That we do not have cause to despair. And Father, there are those here who maybe up to this point have not believed. Haven't known what they thought about Jesus. But now, Father, in leading them to You, I would invite them to pray and confess that they, like all of us, each one of us fathers, are sinners who have no claim before You. We have no claim to, to eternal life. But just as readily, Father, may they confess and believe that Jesus is alive that they can be forgiven in Him and submit to Him as Lord and Savior. Father, if we do that, if we make those confessions, we know that our salvation is secure and that we have the promise of a new life to come and that a new life can begin today such that we will not be the same people ever again, but that day after day we are conformed more and more to who Jesus is. We thank you, Father, that this reality has come to pass because Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he lives and reigns. We give you praise in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.